When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's not easy being the one everyone counts on to keep your operation running, no matter the weather or supply chain hiccup. But we get you Raymond in Buffalo, Maria in Miami, and Jules and Troy. Taking control of everything that's under your control. At Granger, we're here for you with high-quality supplies for every industry, plus real-time product availability and access to experts ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All the early Roman kings in their shark-skin suits, bow ties and buttons, high-top boots. Writers and critics who prophesize with their pens have been writing about Bob Dylan since he burst onto the music scene in New York City in the early 1960s when, in the words of lover and patron Joan Baez, he was already a legend. There have been books about Dylan for almost as long as there has been a Dylan to write about. And in the words of deaf ruler, lover, and poet King Solomon, who said... In the book of Ecclesiastes, now son, he said, Be warned, my son, of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. And yet we know that of the writing of books about Bob Dylan, there seems to be no end either. We're guilty as charged with adding to this endlessness and weariness. Writing as we are about Bob Dylan ourselves, we're writing a guide to Bob Dylan's spiritual wisdom as we speak. And we're also happily guilty as charged to have read a fairly large selection of those books about Bob Dylan too. As we wrap up season one of Bob Dylan about man and God and law, and as we thank the many of you who have joined us for salvation. The Art of Memory, Mapping America, Before the Law, Love, Teachers, and Dylan and the Dead, as well as our two holiday specialettes. As we edge up to the final episodes of Season 1, we're going to share an interview or two with some of the finest of those writers and critics. They are the Blooms, the Ruskins, the Kales, the Riches, who are not interested in the tiresome sport of musical and cultural slings and arrows, as much as they are attracted to plumbing the gaps of the work of a great artist to deepen the contribution of great art to the world. We've mentioned the term Midrash quite a bit over the course of our conversations about Bob Dylan and his work. It's what we did our doctorate on back in the green pastures of New York City some years ago, and we are glad 
that the toolkit of Midrash can be applied to rock and roll, as it must. If you know the New Testament or the Quran or the Book of Jubilees, you know Midrash because it is the ancient Jewish art adapted from Greek literary rhetorical techniques of two or three thousand years ago, which draws out meaning from sacred text as a mode of explaining, accompanying, coloring, and contextualizing it for the audience the creator of a midrash represents. Some of our greatest and most sacred works are, in fact, a kind of commentary or midrash on sacred texts that preceded them, an extension and reinvention of a canonical work. Griel Marcus, Christopher Ricks, or this episode's guest Richard Thomas all come from different academic fields, cultural criticism, literature, or the classics. But each sees Dylan's canon as being of paramount importance to how we live in the world. That Dylan's music demands nurturing explication for rock and roll midrash because the world needs to glean more from what this music has to offer. Darshani! Interpret me. This is how sages of late antiquity, back in the days of early Roman kings, you might say, imagined sacred texts shouting out to them, Give me more voice in the world, these texts said. We matter more than we can say by ourselves. Help us say more. Darshani, show the world why we matter. Well, that's why writers, despite King Solomon's warnings, warned us about a lot of other things, too. That's why writing about Bob Dylan matters. And that's why this conversation with our guest Richard Thomas, George Martin Lane Professor of the Classics at Harvard University, and the author of the book Why Dylan Matters, matters. You know the dream where your assignment on the history of the Western world is due, and it's the last day of the semester, and you can't remember the name of the singer from Minnesota who changed the world, and then your professor shows up at the door to hear your thesis, and you haven't even started it yet? Well, <laughs> you, you let me be in your dream, and I'll let you be in mine. I'm Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Welcome to Episode 8 of Bob Dylan about man and God and law. Our conversation with Richard Thomas, author of Why Dylan Matters. Help me understand what we mean when we talk about a classical poet and how you and others have the audacity to um, propose, right, to the world that Dylan is one of them. Okay, well, I'll give it a shot. So, yeah, I mean, classical, of course, goes back to the Latin word classis, which means a fleet. Obviously, class comes from it. It's a sort of an elitist word. I mean, you might as well get that out there right away. It implies um, a body of work that, at least in its its primary understood sense, you know, you have classic, classic race horses and classic boxes and so on. But it implies from its uh, first applications to Greek and Latin literature and the reception of that literature in antiquity and the Middle Ages and, and beyond, you know, a body of literature that is beyond compare, that is in a class of its own, that is, that is therefore classical. And so we, we talk about classical Latin and uh, and late Latin and medieval Latin and neo-Latin. So all of those in a, labels, in a sense, look to the fact that poets like Catullus, Virgil, Horace, Ovid, um, uh, the classical poets are the poets to whom 
all later literature in a sense looks back. It may look back in terms of changing it, Christianizing it. It may look back in terms of translating it, parodying it in any sort of way. So that, um, that you know, that's sort of where the starting point. And so that's why I'm a classicist. Um, I study Greek and Latin literature of, of those ages. Oh, I'm sailing away, my own true love. I'm sailing away in the morning. Here's something I can send you from across the sea. From the place that I've been landing. You know, the term obviously, and that it can be a applied to racehorses, boxes, and, and others, you know, takes on the meaning of, of, you know, it's a classic or classic rock is that which survives. You know, it's been said, I think Dr. Johnson said it, but he probably said fewer uh, of the things attributed to him, but that a classic is something that everybody knows and nobody reads. Okay. <laughs> That's not quite, we're not quite there yet with my classical poets, but it's a select group. But um, yeah, that certainly everybody knows. And you see in the recent uh, hullabaloo about Dylan selling his song list, you know, how, you know, they'll play uh, Times Hour Changing and Blowing in the Wind, and, and that's about it. So that, you know, that's what, Dylan, the classic is, I mean, and that's true. There's truth to that. You know, those are 50, 60 year old songs, um, but they're still around, you know, whereas if you situate yourself in your youth or my youth, which is even further back, um, you're not going to find many singers of 50 years before who are still household names, shall we say, and whose song titles are household names. So to that extent, Dylan's a classic. For me, he's he stands side by side with my ancient classical poets in that I think he he has something to say and he says it in a way and sings it in a way that um, mean that it's going to be around. It's going to be around beyond his time as it already has been and eventually beyond, beyond his and my and our lifetime. Of course, that's the... That's the test of, you know, this, the songs that have been bought. Are they, is Universal figuring it can, uh, it can make a few bucks in the next 10, 15, 20 years while there are still nostalgic baby boomers who are wanting to buy things during the commercial breaks of football games? Um, or will it go beyond that? Now, I, d I don't really you know what Universal thinks may, you know, may be a sound business practice, but I think they also... Uh, I think one shouldn't be cynical. I think they, there's a recognition that that there's something special about this, uh, about what Dylan's done, and so that yeah, that makes him classical. So when people who aren't, let's say, don't appreciate Dylan, but who are do appreciate the uh, you know my, I can't even say my day job now because I Dylan's also my day job, my seminar every four years, but those who appreciate the ancient poets, but not Dylan or haven't really bothered to try, say, how can you compare the two? And I, I used to be a little defensive and try and explain it, but now I just, um, maybe it's a symptom of my age, but I just um, say, well, you know, have a listen and then let's talk. But uh, 
it doesn't bother me. I, I've become confident in my own uh, skin and my own sort of critical sense uh, and my ability to explain it to myself that, you know, this is a reality that, yeah, that Dylan is a classic. So we've already asked the $300 million question. Um, and, 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 and in answering, you, you mentioned, uh, interestingly enough, uh, boxing and horse races, right? So when I would typically think of uh, classical poets, um, I think, well, well, they would never write about such things as horse racing and, and boxing, right? That's uh, too uh, lowbrow. Obviously, Dylan, uh, who's got a whole range of, of topics and interests, he also writes about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, just like uh, many of his cohorts, but also brings to bear all variety of theological, uh, intellectual, spiritual questions. Did the classical poets uh, write about horse racing and, and boxing and sex and drugs and rock and roll too? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so no literature and no song is going to appeal if it if it doesn't appeal to the 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 sentient human beings who are reading them, who have gone through experiences and who encounter those experiences. So yeah, there's a chariot race in the in the Iliad. There's a boxing match in the Aeneid. The Aeneid sort of intertextual part of the uh, of the Aeneid, where he's looking back to the funeral games of Patroclus, as he writes about. The funeral games for Anchises, the father of Aeneas, and so, and it's so there's a there's a relationship to Homer, but there's also um, and Virgil doesn't actually have a have a um, uh, a horse race; he has a boxing match instead, which is also there in much briefer um, form in the Iliad. But in that boxing match in in the Aeneid, one boxes sort of smashing the brains of another one out they had sort of lead weighted gloves right. not not too gentle I mean those are and um, you can see it if you're ever in Rome uh, again as we hope we will be and in the capital and not the capital in, in the Palazzo Massimo the uh, archaeological museum right across from the train station the boxer you can google him but that boxer who's seated looking down he's in bronze and you can see the scars you can see the blood in bronze and you can see his hands that are wrapped with these thongs and you just see the pain and the grief in his face and Virgil brings that out uh, in his poem so that so that all great literature and I mean all great literature has aspects that appeal and music's the same uh, lyrics are the same that, that appeal to human beings. Um, now they may be dialyzed and put in part of a, into something that goes into mythology or into religious spheres that may leave, you know, one, this reader or that reader behind, but also the connections to those higher spheres are possible because, because of the humanity of literature or literature. So Virgil might seem ancient and noble and classic. He was criticized in his own day for using contemporary words with different shades of meaning. Now you could say that about Dylan's, the language of Dylan um, as well. You know, that changing language in your use of language is something that poets and you know, a songwriter like Dylan does. So, yeah, so it only becomes grand and noble and distant um, if we let it 
become grand, noble, and distant. And if we don't engage through close reading, um, the aspects of, you know, a, a warrior, a Trojan, you know, his city destroyed, um, they head westward, end up in Italy and in a, in a battle for land that looks like the civil war that's, uh, you know, that's happening in Virgil's youth. And that this soldier dies looking up at a foreign sky, you know, a young soldier dying looking up at a foreign sky, um, thinking of his mother back on Mount Ida. Um, yeah, uh, you can plug that in any way you like, from Iraq to Afghanistan to Wilfred Owen or Rupert Brooks in the, the First World War, right? Uh, that never changes, and that's why Masters of War will never, you know, never go out of uh, fashion because rich men are always going to become or stay rich through young men dying. I can see through your masks You that never done nothing But build to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy You put a gun in my hand In the American educational system uh, that I grew up in, at least uh, however many decades ago that was, uh, we encountered the classics in high school. And I'm wondering about this um, formative impact of just the sensibility of youth, um, the richness, the unknowability of the feelings that, that a teenager encounters, and how that really is the crux of where rock and roll is sort of born as a cultural phenomenon. It, it just explodes this idea of teenagers and youth and then carries on. And now we have rock and rollers who are approaching their 80s. What is the weight of the experience of the emergent youth uh, for the classical poets and how you juxtapose that to Dylan, who does spend a lot of creative time reflecting on the past reflecting on his coming of age. And certainly if we hear his Nobel lecture, how it was the literature of his teenage years that he credits with being the formative content uh, for his creative vision. Yeah, that's a fantastic and, and huge question. Yeah, in terms of you know, Dylan, who was went to this amazing public high school, which was very well funded you know, because of the, you know, the disruption and because of the importance of education, mostly vocational for, the, um, for those working on the iron range. But he read this stuff. I mean, we all read this stuff. And, and so what my discovery, of course, was, was that he'd been in the Latin club and people make a lot, lot of that. He was in the Latin club for a couple of years. He did Latin for a couple of years. He's one of, I think, nine boys and 50 girls. That may be why he was in the Latin club. But I don't think so. As I suggest in the book, he had also been, you know, seeing a lot of these Rome movies, sword and sandal movies of the 50s, you know, the movies that Hollywood was making because they couldn't make movies about uh, <clears throat> Washington and sort of the, uh, the McCarthyist stuff so that Rome becomes a metaphor. And Dylan, you know, his uncle owns his movie house, everyone knows that was going to the movies free. But I think he, 
I think there's a lot more to it than that, not just being made of his teacher whom I met. His teacher, his teacher was just, you know, obviously this really cool guy, 10 years older than Dylan, I guess, or more. Um, I sort of 50s, I don't know that he was a beat, but he was really into literature and he was into reading poetry out loud, which again, is a connection to antiquity. Poetry is not to be read silently, you know, depending on how we read St. Augustine, the Romans maybe even moved their lips when they read silently. We can't be sure, but recitation, reading out loud from the very beginning uh, is what it's all about. And that's what this guy did. And if we believe him, you know, Dil Dylan, Bobby, Robert, as he called him, uh, and Creole Marcus has this, yeah, a great article about that. Um, so I won't go on more, but, but Dylan, you know, Dylan being the genius that, years and you don't become a genius when you sit down in 1964, five and decide to go electric, you're a genius from a very early age. And so those early years are important. You know, being aware of that, um, of that background, I think was important, is important of the sorts of things he might have studied without, I try not to get biographical, but being aware of what Dylan was educated in as being aware of what Virgil was educated in as part of the analysis or assessment that, you know, it's part of that Roman middle school practice and that it's with all of us who, who think about literature and song. My old man, he's like some feudal lord Got more lives than a cat I never seen him quarrel with my mother even once things come alive or they fall flat. You can smell the pine wood burning, you can hear the schoolbell ring. Gotta get up near the teachers you can if you wanna learn anything. Romeo, he said to Juliet, you got a poor complexion and don't give you appearance of every youthful touch. Juliet said back to Romeo, why don't you just shove off if it bothers you so much? So you spend a, a fair bit of time on some of the more recent albums. Do you see a kind of return to some of the themes in the actual texts of the classics in Dylan, knowing that he followed the pattern of deep immersion. For him, um, the content was music, um, but he also drank in all of this classical content and certainly literature. And there seems to be a emergence of that content later. Do you see the pattern or is that sort of wishful Nobel Prize thinking on my part? Yeah, no, I, th I think that's again, a huge question. I mean, and I don't pretend that he remembers much of his Latin or that he read any of his poets when he was in school. I think his, his song composition is coming, yeah, exactly from those other places uh, with his own genius sort of mixing them and, you know, including the trip to London at the end of 62, you know, when, when he hears Martin Carthy singing Scarborough Fair and, and you know, gives us uh, you know, boots of Spanish leather, right? You know, when he when he hears uh, Lady Franklin's Lament, this mid-19th century folk song, and gives us Bob Dylan's dream. I fell asleep for to take my rest 
You know, you you believe that, you know, because we've all felt that, you know, I remember what happened to this, you know, I've got two good high school friends who killed themselves 50 years ago, you know, you remember that, particularly on and like, but Dylan's only a few years out of that status, his high school status, but he, so that's an experience, but it's a projected experience. Um, that maps onto a song, you know, which is about absence and loss um, of a very different sort. That's pure genius. That's not literary. That's not from anything he read. It's from the songs that he's hardwiring, as you say. I mean, that he's, you know, he's he's borrowing people's record collections and not returning them, and they're sending guys around with get them back. For what ma what matters for Dylan is sort of having access to that stuff. And so his hunger and his need to do that is a, is a the hunger and need of an artist who knows what he's doing, knows what he needs. So, you know, and there's a, you know, I write about, everyone's talked about the Ed Bradley comment that, no, I can't do songs like that. It's all right, mine. If they do the opening lines, I can't do songs like that, but I can do other things. So that's a statement of the 21st century. And yeah, and it's really, I've found some, I'm I'm convinced or I've convinced myself that in Changing of the Guards in 1978, he's been reading Virgil's fourth eclogue, the Messianic eclogue, when the young boy is born. This is written in 35, 40 BCE, so well before um, the birth of Jesus. But when the young boy is born, we'll start going back to the golden age. There, there, there are elements in the song drafts as much as the song, so including Jupiter and Apollo, uh, that have, you know, I'm happy with Dylan having read and integrating slightly that song, but not in intertextual ways. Then you can look at a song like Trying to Get to Heaven, where, which I have a few pages on the intertext of that. There's a blues gospel, just remarkable. Almost every line has a has a, a status in some other song, but, you know, you try writing that song, you know, you, you right. that, that is just, to me, that's one of my absolute favorite songs of many, many out of this uh, recent catalog. But, but so there, Dylan, again, he's here. I don't think that's bookish. She's not reading in here. But then in 2001 is when really the process starts, um, not just with the ancient poets, but with Henry, Timrod, our friend Bob Polito, we had a meal with back in 2007, it's written a bit about that. The discovery was um, was this guy Cliff Fell in New Zealand who was reading Ovid and suddenly the page started singing to him because he had hardwired modern times, you know, and on modern times we end up finding all of these Ovid lines. So Ovid, you know, Ovid, and I think that's telling that Ovid's exile poems, the last poems of Ovid's life when he's exiled to the Black Sea, are the ones that Dylan discovers. How does he discover this penguin translation of Ovid's exile poems? Um, who knows? You know, does, you know, it's does he say to his people, "Send me Ovid's exile"? Yeah, right. <laughs> does he pick it up in a, you know, in a 
who knows where, a doctor's office or something. <laughs> but he, um, but he has a habit of picking up things, confessions of a Yakuza, Virgil's Aeneid, Ovid's exile poems, and in translation, that are poetic, that even if they're written as prose, they have a poetry and a music to them. And he, I think, at that point of his career, he's seeing on the page and through his self-reading, he's, he's hearing the music and the potential of them. And, um, and so, yeah, so the, you know, particularly Love and Theft, Modern Times, Tempest, and Rough and Rowdy Ways, um, a lot of the ancient material is there. The, um, you know, I had to finish the book a month before the Nobel lecture. I knew he'd have to do a Nobel lecture by June of um, 2017 to pick up the check. And so my publisher gave me, said, I'll give you a week after the date by which he'd have to do the lecture. And he did. And the Odyssey material at the end was pretty much I'd written all of that because I'd seen what he was doing with the Odyssey and the song. And, to, you know, that was great confirmation. But also that his prominence in that lecture, I think, is important, you know, from a lecture that really takes you from, you know, through the key points of his period. He doesn't touch on the religious period, which is interesting. If he ever does a Chronicles volume two, it would be interesting to know if he gets there. But I don't think he will. He'll just give us the songs. But Buddy Harley... Lead belly folk, um, uh, and the vernacular of folk, you know, that is inhabiting it, and that's a form of transfiguration, becoming those figures, as he as he so brilliantly puts it in the lecture, and then the books he read, yeah, and ending with the you know, Moby Dick, All Quiet on the Western Front, and the Odyssey, and ending with the Odyssey, and just his his brilliant reading of Homer, you know, he where he has, you know. He says, you know, that he recounts the thing in the Odyssey uh, where Odysseus meets the shade of Achilles and Achilles has died, um, died for glory, you know, and, and the shade of Achilles says to Odysseus, and I'll read it here because only Dylan can do this, um, uh, Achilles who had traded a life of full of peace and contentment for a short one full of honor and glory tells Odysseus it was all a mistake. I just died. That's all. I just died. That's all. That's Dylan. Not, there was no honor, no immortality. And that if he could, he would choose to go back and be a lowly slave to a tenant farmer on earth rather than be what he is, a king in the land of the dead. And he's setting up, of course, his climax, which is that's what songs are. Our songs are alive and in the land of the living. And that gets us back to Universal's decision. And I think Dylan's recognition or... Um, uh, and certainly one that I would embrace that his songs are in the land living, are alive in the land of the living um, and will be, you know, beyond his time, beyond our time, and just as, say, Homeric poems are. And I think that's, he picks the oldest poem in the, you know, in the Western tradition um, to be talking about poetry that's alive um, and in the land of the living. Mother of muses, sing for me. 
Sing of the mountains and the deep dark sea Sing of the lakes and the nymphs of the forest Sing your hearts out, all you women of the chorus So, so there does seem to be um, a very clear consciousness uh, for Dylan of what he is doing, what he is up to. And, and the lecture um, really laid out in clear terms how he works. Do you think that as someone who uh, has, has written and taught about Dylan, that he, despite his protesting, pays a bit of attention to what certain scholars are saying about him? Have you had any sense that he may have been paying attention to what you have been working on? Um, yeah, I, don't, I try not to go there because, um, you know, you, you get stuck there if you do, maybe. But I have reason to believe he's read a particular page of my book, which I, uh, which has to do with uh, early on about the my sense that Dylan has a moral center to him that's very strong. I have a reason to believe that. It's good reason, but I won't go into it. But, uh, yeah, I, that, that, you know, Hey, Bob must have read chapter three of my book, so that's why he wrote um, "Crossing the Rubicon." Uh, yeah, it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I. Th I mean, Dylan, I think is aware, you know. But on the other hand, you know, the world of research has gone berserk. Too much paperwork is the other, you know. Uh, and certainly, you know, professors don't do well in the songs of the. 1960s so uh yeah i think dylan is aware of the world around him and uh you know he if you just look at don't look back and stuff he's reading reviews um there and that's you know that's really the last i think we have real evidence of his attending to that but but you know i he how he discovered the classical material which is not through what i or anyone else has written about him um i think it's serendipitous like his reading which is not canonical not coming out of any great books course and that's the blessing of it you know that he you know he gets to moby dick and he gets to the odyssey and um but you know he'd he'd read those things some of those things um including the Odyssey, it was sort of read in high schools in translation back then. But I think he gets to the, the uses himself. And so when he writes, when, you know, he, when he summarizes the Odyssey and these brilliant sort of passages, you know, he had drugs put in his wine, he slept with the wrong women and stuff. And so, but then he says, and you too, and, you know, and the U2 is Bob Dylan. You know, what I think he's clearly saying there is what he's doing in songs like, Tin Angel and Early Roman Kings, he's the characters of those songs are becoming Odysseus just as surely as the, the characters in Highway 61 or other songs are emerging from the vernacular of folk song. So that when he talks about mastering the vernacular, that is the language, the language as it is used of folk music, and when he talks about or implies that Odysseus and he are, are, are the same thing, the Odysseus um, of the Odyssey and the characters of uh, Songs on Tempest. Yeah, no, I mean, he. I think it's the same process, basically. 
I'm traveling light and I'm a slow coming what what is happening uh, in in the mind of the poet? How is that draw to mythology so strong, and and what's it mean for us? Yeah, it has to start with uh, with with the poetry that he's reading mattering, and so I think particularly the Odyssey, Odysseus sort of journeying twenty years, sort of looking for home. You know, the analogies with Dylan are obvious. Dylan on the road until COVID came, um, you know, where's Dylan's home? Malibu, Hibbing, uh, New York City, uh, north of Scotland, um, sort of all of the above, you know, where, where are the highlands? Is that the highlands of Northern Minnesota or Scotland or the highlands of the mind? So I think in the Odyssey, you know, people read the Odyssey because of what the stories do to you and what the character and the characters um, go through and how that relates to what we go through. So that initial impulse to um, to engage in one's songwriting, and let's not get too romantic about it, it's songwriting, it's very careful songwriting. Um, once you know the source text has made its impression on the mind of the artist, then 80% of the rest of it is the hard work of getting the song right, integrating the voices of, uh, you know, of the source model into the new song. So that process is one that is, you know, one that has to do with artistic composition, perfection, not just feeling or response to a, you know, to a piece of literature or a song. Out of a window come the dazzling sunlit rays Through the back alleys, through the blinds Another one, another manless days Honeybees are buzzing Leaves begin to stir I'm in love with my second cousin I tell myself I could be happy forever with her and then I think that you know that the recognition of that, the reader, the reader's recognition of that, the reader's um, equating Bob Dylan, that is the character in a Bob Dylan song, with Odysseus is one that I find um, incredibly enriching because it sets that song in a tradition that goes back through time, through other authors through Dante, through Milton, through Virgil, back to Homer. And in the process, in my mind, Dylan is put into that tradition. It's just the latest manifestation of the reception and artistic renovation of that tradition. Now, is Bob Dylan thinking, oh, I'm going to, I want Richard Thomas to think that I'm in a tradition that goes back to Homer, so I'll use this line in that way. Of course not, but his process, um, the process must always be um, cognizant of a reader or a set of readers, an ideal reader, as literary critics um, last millennium talked about it. Um, you know, one's always, who are you writing for? You're always writing for yourself primarily, but you're also writing for it may be just one person, or it may be a group, or it may be uh, uh, 
more than that. So it's complex, but Dylan found in the Odyssey um, fertile um, ground for growing his own um, songs of the, you know, of particularly in that album. And then in a song like Working Around Blues, as I show in the book, where he trades in Ovid for Odysseus, you know, where he, you know, where he, he gives up those beautiful lines, you know, that no one could ever say that I took up arms against you. Ovid's address to the Emperor Augustus, which Dylan, here's the music of Peter Green's translation of the Latin, takes it over into a context which is addressed to what a lover who's not around anymore. No one could ever say I took up arms against you, just the way in which he sings that. Um, it's, it matters, that relationship that's lost, it matters. That's has, you know, so he's seen something in Ovid, but he's reapplied it, and that's how the best, you know, T.S. Eliot talks about stealing as being re-renovating and reapplying in different contexts. But Dylan, in performance, gets rid of that, and in Bob Dylan, you know, so just bounding out of the timber when I hit him square in the backbone, halfway down his spine, um, he takes these lines right out of the Odyssey and trades and I think what he's quite consciously doing there is switching out the exiled Ovid who alludes by the way in his exile poems to Odysseus that he's switch, switching out the exiled Ovid for the the homecoming seeking Odysseus telling stories i.e. singing songs same thing in, in Greek epic um, singing songs um, to an audience. That's what Odysseus is doing. Um, and that's what Bob Dylan in performance, in the, that changed lyric in performance, is doing. Um, and that's the way, one of the many ways in which he's like an oral poet. And if you think about Homer didn't come out of nothing, you know, the Homeric poems are the distillation and the, uh, of centuries of oral literature. And that's what, you know, Dylan's, you know, Dylan can sing Barbara Allen, which is a centuries-old song, but he can also put bits of Barbara Allen into, into, you know, Tin Angel or um, or any other song or ballad that he's reworking. So that's and that's exactly what I think the Homeric poems are. They're both in a tradition, but they also have a creative genius. That's controversial among Homer scholars, but I have to believe there's a creative genius behind the uh, the manipulation and, and composition of the of the poems. Maybe two different poets, for all we know. So you you mentioned uh, kind of the ancestry or the line of uh, transmission of of the poets from Homer uh, to to Dylan. And and also said that um, you're you're pretty sure that uh, um, he's not composing with uh, you or any other potential uh, scholar in mind. But he did leave some really compelling breadcrumbs in that interview in 2012 with Mikhail Gilmore about Transfiguration. When I first read it, um, I thought, oh no, uh, Dylan's really gone off the deep end. This sounds cultic. This sounds crazy. Then 
uh, as the as the comment matured, and particularly in the way that you um, procured it and 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 turned it in, in in different ways, it really starts to make sense um, in understanding where Dylan feeds off of and positions himself within tradition. So. Um, First, do you, do, do, do you think that he planted those uh, clues as a way of providing different ways for hearing his work? It just so happened that was on his mind. Um, how much of it is conscious? How much is it's a practice? And how much of it is, uh, once again, the song and dance man being the right song and dance man at the right time in term of uh, transfiguration, which is so compelling? Yeah, well, I think it, it's always, you know, particularly those interviews he does sort of right around the release of an album, you know, whether it's the, the Rome interviews before uh, in that summer of 2001, before the Love and Theft came out, or the Gilmore one, he's, um, he's yeah, he knows what he's doing in terms of um, alluding to, um, again, it's a, an intertextuality between the interview and the songs that even if he doesn't mention them or casually mentions them in passing are part of what he's up to there so yeah they everything and i was particularly pleased with those pages and with with uh figuring out what i think he meant by or one of the things he meant by transfiguration which you know in a in a more uh less dramatic way and less lively way you could say it's like intertextuality and it's like it's like becoming the characters of folk song in the Nobel lecture, but transfiguration adds a religious aspect to it and a spiritual aspect to it, which also has sort of utter humor, you know, with the, the Zimmerman, the Zimmerman <laughs> motorcycle, uh, you know, who dies and gets transfigured and not saying anything, but, you know, they're both called Zimmerman. And we, we don't bother about the sort of the chronological gap that doesn't make that quite work out. But, and Dylan is, I mean, Dylan is the puppet master, I think, in that, I mean, Michael Gilmore is one of the, one of the greatest sort of writers and, and interviewers of Dylan. But, but Dylan's, um, Dylan's pulling the strings there. And, uh, and I think laying down clues in a way, but just eternally playful. Um, in a sense of elusive and enjoying himself and you know running the show it's, um... so um since you know we have this uh wonderful opportunity here to ask uh, a professor of classics some of the the questions that uh buzz around uh, at three o'clock in the morning around the tables where people just can't stop talking about dylan where do you find uh the the most compelling analog people talk about dylan and homer people talk about dylan and shakespeare people talk about dylan and whitman if you had to choose a, a poet um in in the canon that you're most engaged with who really um has that kind of dylan of his times feel or dylan is the that poet of of dylan's times who would it be Who's the go-to person for you? Yeah, probably given uh, given uh, Dylan's songwriting is now stretched into its third generation, I you know I probably need more than one. But the early Dylan, I think Catullus, um, Catullus comes along and blows away, you know what's happening in Roman poetry. We only have fragmentary remains, but we can tell that 
what Dylan is, what you know, do these Freudians do? What Catullus is doing is utterly revolutionary the same way that what Dylan does in, let's say, 63 to 66 is doing. So that rewriting song, puzzling, puzzling his audience, particularly the more conservative members who don't, you know, something's happening here. Um, that you don't know what it is, Mr. Uh, Cicero, shall we say. <laughs> Cicero seems to have liked the older literature and has a few sort of digs at Catullus. Cicero and is very Como, Cicero right. is yeah. okay. very good. The new poets, or they, yeah, as they call themselves. So, so that conservative, not in a bad sense, but conservative attitude towards literature is something that you find, you know, and, and you find traces of it now in the you know, in uh, you know, Bob Dylan getting a Nobel, outrageous, you know. Um, uh, but that's what revolutionary um, artists do. It's what Picasso did, it's what Catullus did, and it's what Dylan does. So in that moment, Dylan in the mid 70s to really through the rest of the century, I think of Virgil as a sort of the mature poet who is the classic, who, you know, even if they're parodying him, you know, as, as you know, figures of parody Dylan over the years that I mean, you don't get parodied if you're meaningless and if you're, um, if there's not something of quality there that you're trying to take down. And then the later, um, and I'm not being autobiographical, I'm talking about the the voice of Dylan from 97 on, of the, the deliberately tired voice and the lyrics of a, you know, of a, as it's been said, a sort of a worn out pilgrim. You know, that that voice of Arvid, which is also a constructed voice, the Arvid of his exile years, is one that I identify, you know, particularly those exile poems with the, the later Dylan. But then, you know, rough and rowdy ways, which by the way has Mother of Muses crossing the Rubicon, but doesn't have the word for word intertextuality that uh, that the previous few albums had had. And that, that to me is very interesting. I'm still absorbing and thinking about that, but that Dylan's intertextuality, I ask myself what Julius Caesar would do, not what Christ would do, but what Julius Caesar would do. And, and But he at one point quotes, you know, that you know, waiting over there by the cypress tree where, they, where the Trojan um, women and children are being sold into slavery. That's right out of the Aeneid. That's, that's not out of anywhere else. The Cypress, solitary cypress tree, and and the fact that the Greeks are selling the Trojans off or taking them off into slavery is um, yeah. But that's not you know he's not quoting from specific translations of specific lines of Homer, Virgil, Ovid, um, or Juvenal. He's also he also has Juvenal, the satirist. He seems to have a, an ear for for that. Wonderful we poem. talk about threes or, or triads, uh, these these cycles. So you've you've seen we, you've mentioned sort of three phases: Catalyst, uh, Virgil, Ovid. Do you see Rough and Rowdy Ways as being the end of an era or the beginning of an era? Yeah, I, I don't I don't quite know where to put that yet. I'm still you know I'm still uh, thinking about it, listening to it. But not. I, I did something in the the, the uh, online Dylan review, uh, newish online Dylan review on the just called another classical Dylan, sort of on the you know some of the 
classical um, aspects of that album, but I haven't quite figured it out yet. I mean, there are there are songs of pure beauty. I've decided I've made up my mind to give myself to you, and and particularly Key West. I mean, with that everything from that you know that opening, the musical opening to to the very end. Um, I don't know where to put that um, album, including the. I mean the entirety of the album, including Murder Most Foul. Uh, I just don't yet know what to do with that, but it's not uh, it's not a, a downswing in any way. It's as great an album, in my view, as any that he, he's done. I keep saying that every album that comes along, but that um, that's a fantastic album. And I think there, yeah, if you listen to Mother of Muses and read the end of the Nobel lecture on the muses, um, you know, the song more or less deliberately quotes from, you know, singing me, O muse, and through me tell the story ends the Nobel lecture. Well, that's where the, that's where that song, Mother of Muses, really begins. But and replacing the Greek and Trojan warriors with the generals of the Civil War and World War Two, American and Russian, both. Uh, it's. Uh, it's amazing. Yes. So two questions thought to ask. The first, anything that really surprised you when you immersed yourself in this research? Something that just had not engaged with before, whether it was a particular twist and turn of a song, something theoretical, biographical, what surprised you in your exploration of Yeah, I mean, it's been a gradual process from the 1990s particularly through the poetry of Catullus, beginning to think about Dylan not just as something that I did listen to on the side, but someone I saw as really, you know, like my ancient poet. So that was gradual. There were there were aha moments. Um, and I think the, you know, the Ovid on modern times and uh, and the Homeric uh, materials were were obviously sensational probably listening to lonesome day blues um you know which is the first really fully intertextual quoting you know the the um confessions of a yakuza mark twain virgil um that's where he really is beginning to sort of quote verbatim uh in quite fearless and creative ways and so it was first hearing Lonesome Day Blues and hearing, you know, the words, I'm going to tame the proud and just knowing that that was Virgil. So that was, that was the, that was a great moment. So that was the moment I, I bought the album on that morning. I'm, I guess I confess that 9-11, 2001, I bought it, but I didn't listen to it. I bought it in a state of shock. Um, uh, right after, since Tower Records opened at 10, and I wanted to make sure I got it, but the news from New York and Washington was just an hour old, um, that I didn't listen to it for uh, for a few days. But when I did, and I heard Lonesome Day Blues, and I, you know, I had some graduate students who were Dylan fans too, and we just, uh, you know, just blown away by the fact that, that Bob was singing Virgil, which I hadn't yet figured out other than the presence of Apollo and Jupiter and Apollo in Changing of the Guards. I hadn't yet figured out where that was coming from in, in Virgil's 
canon but so that was that was pretty new and that yeah that would be the that would be the i guess the moment i would single out so if you uh, were to uh recall um dylan saying as you cite in why dylan matters that uh one of the paths not taken for him was to be a uh, a Latin teacher, a teacher of Roman history, I think. Was it teacher of, a teacher of Roman history? Roman history or theology. Yeah. Okay, very good. Roman history or theology. And let's imagine that uh, you're, you're the one that gets to pull up your uh, chair close to the teacher and uh, you get one question, one question only. What, what would you want to ask Bob Dylan if you could? Yeah, I, I would be curious to know what, what he... You know, in the space between his his hipping contact with, and I don't again, I don't think he picked up much um, in detail from the Latin club. But I'd be interested to know when he did start um, reading a lot of this stuff in his fifties, shall we say, and sixties, seventies. Um, how much that took him back to those days. Um, you know, because he was, yeah, he was 13. He worked on the radio program of the Latin club. He inducted members and elevated them from servile to plebeian status. Um, and you remember stuff like that. So I would, uh, I would, uh, I guess I would inquire about that. I mean, that probably doesn't sound very imaginative to your listeners, but... Well. Uh, you are in the green pastures of Harvard University, so you know one must stick to one's academic guns and interests. But I think that uh, the specifics of how you've been able to weave a very accessible, very compelling narrative in in why Dylan matters, um, really uh, leaning into scholarship in a way that's readable and accessible and interesting, and and does not cut corners. And um, so much happens in that book that you've written. I, I think that it's a, a, a wonderful service to, to those of us who are listening and, and curious and, and wondering about how Dylan's reading, listening, and writing all work sort of in, in concert in a sense. Um, and, and Boston is, is, um, is quite greedy with its Dylan scholarship because I really do think that your book and, and Christopher's, uh, Christopher Ricks' wonderful uh, Dylan's vision of sin um, uh, catapult uh, the Dylan conversation to new places when it comes to um, to great books, to, to classical poetry, um, recontextualization in a in a powerful, wonderful way. So, um, well, thank you, thank you, and yeah, and Christopher Ricks, of course, you know, is a scholar who made it okay in a way to to work on Dylan. So we should never forget that, which he, you know, he. I mean, but not just that book, but the amazing lyrics um, tome that he put out with uh, with all of the scholarship and reading and uh, close reading and metrical analysis that goes into that edition, and it's it's every page is worth study in terms of his reorganizing um, the lyrics according to the poetry as he hears them, and nobody. Has poetry and rhyme better than than he does. Well, it's a pleasure to to talk with you and uh, to reconnect after that uh, that just amazing few days that we all spent in uh, at the University of Minnesota in total uh, Dylan immersion and overload. 
with people from all over the world. And I recommend to everybody why Dylan matters. Um, I don't know if Richard, if you've you've been able to answer the question, but you've given a really good college try. I'm convinced. I am convinced. I will state publicly: yes, Dylan does indeed matter. But great writing about Dylan, uh, such as yours, really uh, makes him matter even more. So, thanks for that. Thank you, Stephen. This has been a conversation with Richard Thomas, George Martin Lane Professor of the Classics at Harvard University and the author of the book, Why Dylan Matters. Thank you, Richard, for a stellar conversation. Be sure to read about it, even if you know it, Why Dylan Matters. We've got two final assignments for you as we finish up season one of Bob Dylan about man and God and law. First, a special surprise interview with a Dylanite everybody knows and as our capstone episode dylan at home find and follow us at www.mangodlaw.com for clips show notes writing and more subscribe rate and share anywhere podcasts are found and help this project grow we are proud to be part of the pantheon podcast network the home for the most compelling music podcasts in the whole wide world I'm Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Thanks for coming, and see you soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.